and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Um, the original plan was for us to look at verse 43 to 48. However, uh, uh, this evening, Jordan was supposed to preach, but he and his family are sick. And so uh, uh, he won't be preaching tonight. So what you're getting is this morning sermon in two parts. So your uh, uh, outline and your bulletin, we're just going to look at the first point. So if you want to know what the rest of the blanks are, you've got to come tonight. That's the catch. Come tonight and you'll be able to fill it out. Okay. With that, if you will, stand with me at a reverence of God's word, page 853 of your pew Bibles. The evangelist uh, Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as, as always, every time we gather the same thing, because we need the same thing from the Spirit. You would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our eyes that we would see your kingdom, our mind that we would understand uh, your word, our ears that we would hear and heed your message, our mouth that we'd speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Jesus. Lord, if... There is to be renewal and revival. Let it begin in our own hearts, in our own churches, and in our own communities. And Lord, a big key of that will be when we learn to love our enemies. Lord, this is the Christian ethic rooted in the proper love of our Savior. As we seek to love you, help us to love one another, even those that we may characterize as enemies. And Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On October 5th, 2006, 25 Amish students were meeting in a one-room schoolhouse when all of a sudden, a heavily armed man by the name of Charles Roberts stormed in and held everyone hostage. He eventually let all of the men uh, 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 go, and he kept the little girls and the teacher. There he held them hostage, and surprised by how quickly the police were called, uh, there was a standoff. Tired of the standoff, Mr. Roberts began to murder each child one by one, until eventually the police stormed the schoolhouse where he himself died as a result. Of the incident, everyone inside the schoolhouse had been shot, and only five survived. How would you have responded? If this wasn't the Amish community, what if it were the Baptist community? What if it were us here, and this was our story? How would we respond to a clear act of demonic evil? In response to the tragedy at the Amish school, Americans did what Americans always do. They donated money to help pay for the medical bills of those affected. The Amish responded by taking the remainder of that money and giving it to the widow and the orphans of the, of the gunman himself. For now they were without father and husband. Even more than that, after the Amish had 
had buried their own dead, they all gathered together in unison and went to the gunman's funeral where they mourned his loss. They reached out to his widow and offered their condolences and said that they would continually pray for her and her young children. Loving your enemy, Lewis would remind us, is easy until you have an enemy you are called to love. No one said love was ever easy. But when we apply gospel love in difficult situations and difficult people in our lives, what we will find is the mystery of gospel love is beautiful. We find ourselves in the middle of Jesus's most famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. And, and no doubt we, we recognize a lot that Jesus says here. And this is certainly one of those high points. We all know that Jesus told us to love our neighbor and to love our enemies. And here is where Jesus picks up on that. And what he does is he tells us what this love looks like. And what we'll see here this morning is his discussion of, of false love here, verse, verse 43, False love. You have heard that it was said this, love your, neighbor, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, verse 44, that's. So he begins with false love. Now, many of you may re- recall, I certainly do, that on August 17th, 1998, uh, our then president, uh, William Jefferson Clinton, testified before a grand jury regarding a certain relationship he had with an intern in the White House. You remember he was asked the question he did not want to answer. You remember what his answer was? It all depends on the meaning of is, is. Now, at the time, the infamous statement was viewed as bizarre and unbelievable from a president who clearly didn't want to answer the question. But what I have found in the 30 years since is that what we have is an entire culture that has a way to play with semantics. We like to redefine words. We like to change uh, uh, what the question was and so on and so forth in such a way that it will favor us. Let me give you an example. Whenever I was a youth pastor, we would play a game called Kick the Can Every Lock-In. The students loved Kick the Can. Now, don't tell them this. Of course, they're all adults now. But Kick the Can was hide-and-seek. But I couldn't come out and say, let's play hide-and-seek because that was for the kids' ministry. So we had to do Kick the Can. It had a few different elements. Basically, I would play it. I had to be because I had to be in charge of everybody in the dark, right, in the middle of a rural area. That is a scary uh, thought. And so basically you would catch people, you would seek them out, you know, all this. Sort of, it was a fun game. They loved it. What I found every time we played it is the long list of rules I, I had to, to announce got longer and longer because, because it's, a, it's a hiding game and they would find all kinds of places to hide. And I discovered if I did not list something, they would think it was okay to hide there. So I would say things like, don't hide on the roof. Don't tear off the shingles. Don't hang from the gutters. Don't go into the cemetery. Stay on church property. Don't cross the road. Don't go inside. Don't don't bother the bushes. Don't try to hang from the branches. And on and on. Stay out of my car. Stay out of everybody else's car. Not under the car. Not in the car. Not on the car. Not near the car. Stop doing this. And then... Inevitably, we play a round of kick the can, and then I would have to say, guys, I apparently didn't mention 
Don't hide in the old chimney. But you didn't say, Brother Kyle, we couldn't hide in the chimney. Well, no, but, but, but I thought you could have picked up that you weren't supposed to hide in the old chimney. Well, we do this on a daily basis where we will massage a word or a sentence or a question in such a way that it makes us look good. The Pharisees and the Jews of this time did exactly the same thing. They loved to play semantics with God's word, applying it in such a way that it would only apply in their favor. So while President Clinton was struggling with the meaning of is, in this text, the Pharisees and the other Jews were struggling with the definition of neighbor. Notice that Jesus is picking up on a proverb that was clearly common at this time. It has two parts. You have heard that it was said, so it's clearly proverbial. You shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So you have a proverb in two parts. The first is, you shall love your neighbor. Now, where is that coming from? Well, you may already know the answer. That's coming from the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, that's taken straight from the text. Love your neighbor. Moses told us to love our neighbor, so I guess we have to love our neighbor. But the question then is, where, where does this other half of the proverb come from? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, let me show you where it is in the Bible. It ain't. It ain't in the Bible. You will not find a verse in the Bible that says, Verily I say unto thee, hate thou neighbor if. You're not going to find it. It's not there. I looked and looked, and it's not there. So clearly what Jesus is doing here is he is citing what would have been a common proverb, probably taught by the religious elites like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and others, and certainly believed by the average person. They were raised in such a culture where they said, God wants us to love our neighbor, but there are certain people, God is okay if we hate them. I think I could prove this to you historically. We do know that there was a group of Jews, monastic Jews, that lived out in the deserts. And, and the reason they, were, they, they did this, much like we have monks and whatnot throughout the centuries, they, 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 they thought that in order for God to redeem Israel, they had to escape the culture. So they went out to, to some caves. They were known as the Essenes. They're not referenced in the New Testament, though they were around in the New Testament times. It's very likely they are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, for those who know what those are. And the Essenes not only copied God's word, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they also sort of wrote some of their own stuff. And so we have an idea of what they were teaching. They were a very apocalyptic group. One of their problems we have in the writings was this, love the brother, hate the outsider. In fact, we find elsewhere in the writings the, the statement that uh, you were to love the sons of light and to hate the sons of darkness. No doubt Jesus has these and other similar statements in mind when he is saying, you have heard this every day of your life. You've been taught this. But let me tell you this over here. He says, you have heard you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And in starting verse 44, he tells them a better way. Now, you and I may sit here and think that is a bit surprising. Love your neighbor is clearly taught in the Mosaic Bible, as we saw, Mosaic Law. But, but how do you justify hating your enemy? Well, it all comes down to the definition of neighbor. 
You see how easy that is. If you can define neighbor as, as, as someone who likes you, someone who treats you well, someone who shares your ethnicity, your race, your religious background, your cultural backdrop, well, you, if you can define neighbor like that, then hating your enemy seems not only justifiable, but good. God only wants you to love these people, your neighbor, not those people, the outsiders. It becomes very easy when you play semantics to justify hate. In fact, this shows up in the New Testament. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Remember how it starts? An expert in the law, a lawyer, shows up to, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what is, how do I inherit eternal life? Remember what Jesus says? What does the law tell you? And so the man recites, well, the law tells me I should love God with all my heart, my body, my soul, my strength, everything, and I should love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you are exactly right. What I want you to do is I want you to leave here. I want you to love God with your entire being, and I want you to love your neighbor equally so. And then the man followed up with the big question of the day. Who's my neighbor? You want me to love my neighbor, but you haven't defined neighbor for me. Does that mean that in hating my enemy, I am loving God? In hating the outsider, am I still loving my neighbor? So to answer the question, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. What it is that we discover? The neighbor is anyone and everyone. You're a good Jewish boy. If you're walking up the road and you discover that that a Samaritan is suffering. He is your neighbor. After all, in the story, it was a good Jewish boy who suffered, and it was the Samaritan who showed him kindness. He loved his neighbor. And remember that the conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews was quite legendary. He clearly plays on socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, cultural, and, and, and other divides to illustrate the point that your neighbor is anyone and everyone. In God's kingdom, love transcends man-made boundaries and tribal barriers. The reason neighbor was so hard to define in Jesus' day is because enemy was so easy to define in their day. It's no different than it is even now. Neighbor becomes difficult to clearly define whenever we know exactly who it is we want to hate. Remember that the Jews were a subjugated people not interested in synchronizing their faith with Roman culture. All the, everyone else who had been, uh, uh, who, who had been uh, colonized by the Romans all accepted Roman culture because the Romans accepted their culture. Oh, you like X, Y, and Z? We like X, Y, and Z, but we need you to like A, B, and C too. And that was their system. It was a syncretistic system. Everyone did that but the Jews. Because the Jews believed they were in the promised land, and God had given them this land, and they were to be free in this land from any foreign influence. Here come the Romans with their armies and their system and their politicians and their injustice and their harsh treatment. And so they lived every day under the, the, the oppressive rule of Rome. So every day they encountered Roman soldiers who no doubt had Jewish blood on their hands. They ran into Jewish tax collectors who were profiting off the subjugation of their own people. 
and they were working for the oppressor. They encountered Samaritans who were uh, who who were uh, in who interbred with pagan Gentiles, and they in, and they interacted with sinners who were the cause of all of their suffering. If you look around as a Jew in the first century, they would conclude we have many reasons to hate people, and God wants us to hate them. They are the blame for everything bad in our lives. We are the victims. And because we are victims, the only proper response, the only just response is to hate them. Any of this sound familiar? It's exactly what it is we have now. That's why it's easy for us to sit comfortably in our warm pews to scoff at the first century Jewish world. But then we ought to look at our very own. Let's think of American history a little bit. Imagine if the British had won the War of Independence and their response to our revolt was to calm down harshly. Harshly. What would loving your neighbor mean when the Redcoats are marching through your streets? Going into your house, stealing your property, robbing you of your goods. Let's imagine if the Nazis had won the Second Great War and their socialism, racism, and hatred dominated American culture. What would love your enemy mean in such an environment? Let's imagine the communists won the Cold War and they brought with them their brand of communism. And with that came their laws and everything else. What would loving your neighbor look like? Imagine if your political opponents had a supermajority around the country. Their laws were normalized, their policies dominated, and their regulations were common, along with all of their cultural mandates and expectations that you are forced to go along with or else. What does loving your neighbor look like in that scenario? You and I have taken liberties and democracies a bit for granted. You and I complain about everything without any fear of reprisal. We enjoy the sort of freedoms that the first century Jews couldn't fathom. They were a hated and subjective people. They hated others because the others were every day hating them. So it made sense. You love those who love you. You hate those who hate you. Human history demonstrates that hate at its core is a moral and spiritual problem, not a racial, cultural, or political one. It manifests itself in these areas, but at its core is a spiritual issue. It is idolatry, and it must be remedied with the gospel. The stain of sin on the human heart manifests itself in a variety of forms like racism, like class hatred, ethnic bigotry, religious intolerance, and discrimination. And the truth is, we Christians can be just as guilty of this as anyone. I've had many conversations, especially since COVID, where, people, where we have responded with such urgency, such, such, such vibrancy. We think that the only answer to, to, to solving our problems is if we destroy those people. I've had many of these conversations over these years. And I am concerned with the rhetoric of the right saying that the left is American or the left using the rhetoric saying the right are bigots, Nazis, right, racists, and, and, and that on both sides wish the very existence of the others didn't, didn't happen. 
Such tribal rhetoric, clouded by politics, but motivated by hate and fear, is nothing different today than what Jesus confronted in the first century. Love your brother, we believe. Hate the lefty woker. Love your neighbor, we believe, but hate your alt-right uncle. Love your party, we are told, but hate your LGBT neighbor. Love your family, we believe, but hate the bigots. It's amazing, isn't it, how easily we, too, redefine what Jesus meant by neighbor. These terms are rarely defined with clarity so that we can justify our hate. And this is the vicious cycle of tribalism, and it is consuming America. When I was at Southern, we had a, a guest preacher come, and he was an immigrant. He was from another nation, had an Islamic background. He converted to Christ, came to America to study. And he said, my experience with America was quite fascinating. I saw the tribalism before really a lot of Americans did. He said, when I, went, when I came into high school, and, and he said, the first question I was asked in high school was, what side are you on? Louisville or Kentucky, right? That, that, that was the first question he gets. He goes to college and he's asked, what side are you on, Democrat or Republican? So, so he, he, you know, he, he had to figure that out. And then he went into the ministry, the first church he, he ever preached at. He gets asked, what side are you on, Calvinist or Armenian? Right? We, he said, everywhere I went, everyone would know who I was by what side I was on. Because whatever side I won must have been the good guys and those other guys must have been bad. This is like an old western. I'm the good guy. I wear the white hat. They're the bad guy. They wear the black hat. And my, the white hat people could be a certain race, political party, or whatever identity might be. We're good. They're bad. And when we do that, we justify our own evil and we highlight the, the weakness and the failures of the others. This is tribalism and it's consuming us. We too have bought into the proverb, God wants you to love your neighbor, but he equally wants you to hate your enemy. This is false love. It's false love. Tribalism, unforgiveness, grudges, bitterness, and hate is why our wounds never get healed. It's why families never reunite. It's why our nation is tearing itself apart. Hate never heals. It never cures. It will never bring peace. One of the errors that we make in reading the Sermon on the Mount, which we started again last year, are picking up now, is that we read it almost not as the Sermon on the Mount, but as many sermons from a mounts. That is to say that you know, Jesus stood up, he gave, the, he gave the Beatitudes, took him five minutes to do it. They then prayed, dismissed, and had fried chicken. Maybe the next week he, he talked about being salt and light. It took him five minutes to do it. They prayed and they went home and had fried chicken. He went over here, he, he talked about prayer, talked about the Lord's Prayer. He gave that, took him maybe 10 minutes. He splurged a little bit. They, they prayed in service and went out and had fried chicken. That's the way we read it. When actually what we end up doing is we miss that there's a flow to Jesus' argument. This is a good example of that. What Jesus has here is really the conclusion of a major section of this sermon. And, and what he's saying is, he says, here's the big idea. What I want you to do is I want you to love your neighbor, period. Don't redefine it. Don't change it. Don't make it fit your preconceived notions of what neighbor is. Love everyone, including your enemy. And let me show you the benefits of that. In fact, he's already talked about this. Go back with me to chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. 
This is after Jesus has given the Beatitudes. He gave the salt and light. So we could actually go back up, up to that, and we'll see that here in a minute. Uh, or actually, we'll see it this evening. Uh, because Jesus mentions blessing those who persecute you in verses 10 to, uh, 10 to 12. So he's already addressed this at the end of the chapter. But if we start at verse 17, here Jesus talks about how he came to fulfill the law. And his point is, is that love fulfills God's law. Go down to verse 19, just, just to keep it short. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Can you name a commandment of God in the Mosaic law? I got a good one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that a good law in Moses? Yeah, we read it in Leviticus. So verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and we're talking about the greatest of these commandments. Well, not only does he, does he relax them, but he teaches others to do the same. They will be the least in the kingdom. And whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom. You see how love fulfills the law. Christ comes in fulfillment, and he embodies the law by, by, by fulfilling it by the means of his crucifixion. Go down to verse 21 and 26. What it is we see here that not only does love fulfill God's law, but love forgives and purifies our worship. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with him. You notice what Jesus just said there? If you are driven by love, they love of neighbor. That includes your brother who has wounded you, whom you have sinned against. He says reconciling there is vital to the purity of worship. And what keeps many of us from reconciling with those whom we've been wounded by or that we have hurt is the refusal to forgive others. The people you, for, you refuse to forgive are the people who become your enemy. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, the implication is that love will choose forgiveness. Love will seek reconciliation. So if, if love fulfills the law, well, okay, then, then you need to apply it. You come bearing your, your, your gifts and your sacrifices to worship. Jesus says, none of that is, is, is pure. Go and forgive. Go and be reconciled. Then bring it to the altar. What if Christians applied that? How many would be here on a Sunday morning? Love forgives and purifies our worship. Not only that, but love protects the dignity of others. Go down, verses 27 to 32, we see Jesus talking about the issue of lust. We'll just read verse 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's taken right from the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So, so what you get then is he talks about lust. And in verses 31 and 32, he talks about divorce. And he says that it starts with don't commit adultery. And what they did was they redefined adultery to fit them. To fit them, we do the same thing today. And so then he, he puts these two ideas together. The root issue for often is the issue of lust. He says that if you practice love, you will protect the dignity of others. That will save your marriage. Because in order for a marriage to work, you have to prioritize their needs, wants, and desires above your own. That's what love does. 
Love does not enter into a room and say, I'm the center of attention. Give me everything I want and demand. It's not love. It's called selfishness. So you see that how love builds up and protects the other. It, it protects their dignity. And thus for the good of the relationship. We also see, starting in verse 37, love honors its word. So again, we're just skipping quite a bit. Verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let your word be yes, let it be no, but do not let it be anything else. Love protects our word. And finally, we can see in verses 38 to 42 that love reconciles. We saw a hint of this earlier, but here it's made very clear. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. We, we know this well. So, so how do we respond with retaliation? How do we handle anger? How do we do all this? The answer is, again, love. Love is the Christian ethic. From the gospel, we get, a, we get this understanding of love. So now it makes sense when he comes in. He says that if you have seen that love fulfills the law and you've put into practice forgiveness and purity of worship, you are protecting the dignity of others, you are honoring your word, and you're reconciling with your brother by choosing reconciliation over retaliation, then it makes sense now. You should love your neighbor. Love is the Christian ethic. And the gospel tells us that Jesus entered into our world and showed us what this love looks like. He entered into our world of tribalism and hate. He suffered under the weight of injustice and oppression, and he conquered it all by the grave. Not by raising a sword, but by laying down his life. He showed us what real love looks like. If America is going to heal, it will not come through the voices of demagogues or conspiracy theories but through the triumph of Christ. Why can't you and I befriend that insufferable co-worker? Why can't you and I forgive our sisters? Why can't you and I pray for that person who hurt us? After all, Jesus, a Jewish man, suffering under political oppression, racial injustice, and religious hates turned to those who were killing him and prayed for their forgiveness. If Jesus can do that, surely we can seek to reconcile. Surely we can learn to forgive. Surely we can avoid anger, resentment, and American tribalism. Surely we can choose love. Surely we can choose Christ. No one said love was easy. But when it is practiced, it is certainly beautiful. I mentioned the Amish earlier. A few years later, another gunman showed up on these American shores. March 8th, 2009, and. At First Baptist Church, Marysville, Illinois, a gunman walked in, walked right up to the pastor, Fred Winters, and killed him. Eight days later, his widow went on CBS and said the following. I do not have any hatred or even hard feelings towards the gunman. We have been praying for him. 
One of the first things that my daughter said to me after this happened was, quote, you know, I hope that he comes to learn to love Jesus through all of this. We are not angry at all. And we really firmly believe that he, the gunman, can find hope and forgiveness and peace through this by coming to know Jesus. And we hope that happens for him. Love is easy until you have someone hard you are called to love. And you have those people in your life right now. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But the gospel tells us a better story. Love your enemy. In fact, pray for them and seek their well-being. If we grasp the beauty of the gospel, this will be done. And if God would move mightily in our nation, in our city, and in our churches, this will be done. But if we choose the way of the world, be careful lest we consume one another. Choose true gospel love and not the fake one. So I don't know what your story is. I don't know what needs you have, but I'm willing to bet this morning there is someone God has laid on your heart. You have chose to exile. You have chosen to hate. You have chosen to ignore. You have chosen to destroy. Would you come here this morning and choose love? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to help us to...